Welcome everybody to episode two of the Performance Strategies and Stumbles podcast. We're going to get straight into the action here with guest number two, John Noonan, and we're going to be talking about race day strategies in motorsport. So let's get straight into it now. John, really happy to have you with me today on this episode of the podcast. So for the listeners, it'd be great if you could just tell them a little bit about the current role you have. Fantastic. Listen, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Great to be chatting. So my role really right now is I'm a performance coach. I'm a self-employed freelance performance coach, sharing my time working with elite athletes. And one of those, I guess, larger roles that we're perhaps going to dig into later will be in motorsports. And then working with a series of other individual sports and organizations and, and business leaders and trying to help people with successful outcomes in their own, their own domain. Perfect. And so with that specific role, we're going to get straight into the weeds of, of supporting motorsport athletes and most specifically related to this episode, performance strategies for race day. From the moment we're leaving the UK with an athlete to the moment we're arriving back and everything around that race day prep, what is it within your role that you have to do? Well, I mean, even the title performance coach is a little bit, can be a little bit fluffy and you know, I make no bones about it. My former career really, it, it's been a key part of where I am today, but a sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach, and was really fortunate to work with a number of teams and and anyone that works in teams or has an understanding of the industry, at least, will know that you do quite quickly get siloed and very busy at trying to develop your skill set, knowledge, and capabilities as an S&C with a department and when working integrated practices. And it was really through a breadth of experiences working with lots of different teams and individuals that obviously you gather lots of experience and you become a little bit more informed, a little bit more aware and diligent about the practices of medical, about psych- um, psychology. Uh, nutritional and so forth. And invariably, you start to work with individuals maybe that runs alongside, say, a full-time role as it did for me at the time in, in pro sport, where actually I was the guy then starting to have conversations about nutritional strategies, recovery strategies, and not just sets and reps and lifting weights in the weight room. And that was a really, a really, I guess, a curious time for me because I started to broaden my knowledge and deepen my skill set. And invariably, I think as a coach, especially if you're quite ambitious, you're looking to broaden your offering and deepen the value that you can offer any individual or a team. And I guess I kind of went through a cycle of working with different teams, started to work individually with teams. And that's when I kind of fell into the idea of I'm a performance coach. And I think I had to get a little bit comfortable with that title, but really having honest and open conversations about how are we preparing, how are we performing, and how are we recovering from a, you know, an individual tournament or competition or a season. But in terms of the race day itself, before we get there, we are having some out and out, I guess, if you will, we call it performance conversations, but really honest and open conversations about what are the potential challenges or objectives that we can see in front of us for the upcoming weekend based on where we've been and based on where we want to. How do we want to show up for that? And what behaviorally and mentally would that look like? So we're being really open, honest about maybe getting a little bit uncomfortable having some tricky conversations about, I think I could have done this a bit better. I know this was an objective from before. I didn't quite show up in a way that was aligned to, and I think I'm going to do that better this time. So we're evolving. It's an iterative process all the time, but that allows us when we get on track to refer back to that starting point to say, this is what we've defined as what success looks like. And right now, how do we embody that picture? And for me, really, it's about trying to get out of their way as much as possible, really, because I think we have to make sure that what we've embodied from a strategy that wraps around them is independent in nature, that they are autonomous and that they have the tools and the knowledge and the, and the 
the support that allows them to lean into in this moment, I have to be doing this now mentally because of, I know that this is what brings the best out of me and, or coming out of the car for a second. How are we fueling these guys nutritionally, hydrationally? How are we dealing with heat? What does the whole um, logistics of the weekend look like? Combining that with media, engineering, and other conversations that they're having. It's a really busy, all-encompassing scenario that they find themselves in. So but let's take the, the actual race out of it as such. Well, we can get into the elements within the race that you have an impact, but in the preparation side of things, what are some of the sort of key areas that you are repeatedly race after race after race having to work on and, and get right. I'm thinking about warm-ups and preparation. And we see a lot of that on the social side of things with maybe right. some of the focus and attention work as well. Right. So right. maybe like, are those some of the key areas that you are targeting in a very strategic way? Look, very much so. I mean, let, let's touch on the warm-up for a moment and, and certainly folks who are physical preparation, um, coaches and practitioners. You know, I think we're all, to a point, are fairly comfortable there. But the interesting thing is we... I guess like in, in other sport domains, really, you have a, um, a protected window where you can prepare them for the event that's coming up. And the, but the interesting piece around this with the motorsport especially, and then if you consider heat for a moment, is that you know, I think when we think about talking around warming up, we're thinking about raising core body temperature, raising um, you know, muscle temperature, um, improving, let's say, post-activation potentiation and, and priming their system, either physically and or neurally for optimal outputs of those things that's fine the challenge with that or the paradox of that is obviously when we're in a hot environment which in the summer months around europe it does get really hot obviously we're traveling and this is formula two talking from this angle of things and it's heightened really in formula one but when you fly away to the internationals and we have um say the middle east where we were recently uh, and australia at times can get fairly hot anything where we're touching high ambient temperatures of high 20s and certainly above that it gets into the 30s Combine that with a track temperature that can be knocking around 40 to 50 degrees. Combine that with a corporate temperature that's ramping up to around that level as well. These guys are wearing um, thermal undergarments, overgarments, a race helmet, gloves. You know, every part of them is sealed, concealed effectively, so you cannot expose the skin in case of a fire. And then you're kind of working back then from the idea of, but I'm going to warm them up. So what's the purpose of that warm up, really? I'm not trying to drive a lot of, a lot of core temperature now. In the winter period where we'd say doing testing and that and as such, and it's cold and they want some heat so they can actually feel the dexterity in their hands and fingers. For sure. We'll get skipping reps out and we'll maybe do jogging or whatever, or we'll do some, you know, kind of like tennis hand-eye reaction stuff, but we're encouraging some movement. So we're getting some of the core temperature. But what I'm actually trying to do, really, normally, I would say at least 80% of the time is I'll recognize that there'll be a response from a warm-up where we'll see a, an increase in core temperature, but actually in the hot environment, in the cockpit environment where it's incredibly hot, we don't want to impede cognitive performance. So we don't want to avoid, we want to avoid as, as much as we can and delay this kind of, this curve of heating up. We want to cool down as much as we can because we recognize they're going to heat up again when they get into the car. So really working back from that event thinking, can we, can we cool as much as we can? So I will do say a warm up, and then we'll do some cooling and then they'll have final conversations with the engineers and, you know, the movie chat, the mechanics. And then there's a bit of relaxation moment where for at least 10 minutes, they can be on their own, maybe get really crystal clear with what are the things that they're going to get after at the start of the event and manage that throughout the session based on the strategy that they've defined. And then they'll deliver that. But in a real simple term, you know, the warm up, we're doing some kind of mobility. And generally speaking, you know, these guys spend hours and hours and hours a year inside 
a very uncomfortable position in a, in a in a seat that's reclined. So they struggle with hips, spines, inherently aren't that mobile in those places. Don't formally have backgrounds of you know running team sport athletes. So don't they don't often move traditionally that well? I would say compared to a normal athlete too. So we want to try and give some kind of level of mobility there, some stability there. But by and large as well, once we've kind of taken care of those things, really I'm interested in vestibular system and getting that really switched online. So when they have a race start, they're able to adapt very, very quickly, quicker than we can even think about reactions to cars around them, about where they're going to drive into the corners and where they're going to place their eyes. So their ability to have good depth perception, good acuity and good reaction time it's huge. So then invariably, we're going to have some kind of vestibular cognitive, you know, reaction. Can we dig into that? Like if we, if we look at the warm up, the mobility, stability, yeah. little, you know, not trying to dig deep into raising heart rate. So the, the, the ramp protocol probably becomes a little bit obsolete and you're looking at more of the, an amp protocol. You can imagine the general work you're doing around hips and thoracic and, and those kind of things. Um, but then getting into that vestibular work as a coach, is that, is that, is that throwing them challenges? Um, is it throwing them things in terms of, is it iPad work? Is it the tennis ball work you see? What does that work look like? Mm. For anyone that's, I guess, and you know, there's a real growing interest, in, especially in social media and Instagram, if people are watching Formula One. And I think the, the growth of, of curiosity is, is really peaking at the moment. You will see a series of um, either blaze pods, you know, where you see guys reacting to almost like a portable light board. You'll see those. You'll see guys doing hand-eye coordination with tennis balls. Some juggle, some are throwing and catching implements, different colors, different shapes. Some guys actually just prefer to do football because they really want to chill out, but there's still a reactionary element to that. And it's a fun thing as well, which allows them to almost avoid the overthinking that's going to come their way shortly as well. Um, others I, I quite like as well, if the driver's keen on it, these um, synaptic glasses, you know, which then tend to, a bit like... Um, a bit like a pap idea, really. You are, you would do a loaded movement and then unload them and take and take the the constraint away. You load the movement by blocking parts of their vision. That makes their their other systems have to work harder, higher. And interestingly, you know, my driver he will when he's wearing the the, the glasses and we're blocking parts of his vision. That means he can't react and catch up all effectively as he would do normally. If the engine's running in the background and there's a lot of noise around you, a lot of hustle, he can't then use his sensory system from his ears. To make up the deficit so he has to be challenged in some way to find a solution to solve that problem and then invariably when you take the glasses away it's like watching someone in the matrix you know you're throwing some outrageous shots at them and, and ball drops and they're getting it every single time and it's anecdotal for the best part and i think the research around that at least the rigor of it is developing and it's it's i think slowly unraveling but if we really peel back what are the performance problems that we're trying to solve and it's their ability to react quickly to make fast decisions accurately in heat in the moment, and then mentally underpinning all those things, demonstrate good resilience and adaptability in the car. But you know, their talent, their skill set absolutely is going to be impeded by how quickly they come to the party with their, their brain and their eyes. So I try to draft that in as much as I can. Invariably, it's been a learning curve for me to do those things too, because generally speaking, football and rugby is less of a common practice, I think. There must be something here that is um, collaborative, far out from competition as well. So I know we're talking about race day, but there must be some performance, innovation, trial and error approaches to see what works for the drivers, I'm sure, as well. I do, and it probably hopefully comes across. I, I am quite informed. I prefer to make decisions based on, you know, 
fairly strong grounded evidence that, that carries a little bit of rigor so that I can stand in front of the athlete and say, there's some credibility in this. We can lean into this. Let's give this a go. However, if I'm coming to an individual who maybe is lesser experienced um, or challenged in other ways, and maybe suffering from some overwhelm, I'm probably not going to throw a host of challenges at them in a state or in a, in a moment where they've got to be really dialed in and just kind of pull back and calm down rather than be maybe becoming overwhelmed by I'm doing this thing, this thing, this thing. So it's horses for courses in that respect, but by and large, for sure, before we, before we introduce any of these concepts of modality trackside, we're doing it in training. You know, these guys are in the simulator a lot as well and introducing methods like this around prep prior to sim work is your best litmus test for it. But so largely it's a combination really of introducing some informed solutions, but then being very athlete-led at the same time to find those balances. I think that's the same in most environments, right? I think we'll talk about mistakes later, but some of the biggest mistakes practitioners can make is seeing evidence and saying this is a protocol we should use and not experiencing if it has, uh, if it fits the context of the sort of ecologically dynamic environment that you're in. Right. So that's really cool. In terms of the, the, the cooling then, is that an engineer-led initiative or is that a sports science strength conditioning? Initiative. No, it's, it's, it's very much, I would say, the driver and myself led. Again, conversations around introducing cooling, you know, cold plunging is is done away from the track, away from away from the scrutiny of the performance environment. And the important thing for me there is that again, the individual feels incredibly informed and incredibly autonomous about that decision because they're going to be the one that, especially in a sport like motorsport, that is rapidly developing and we are seeing improved introductions, uses of sports science, physical preparation modalities around the sport, yet it's still the developing one. It's, it's kind of gone through that life cycle that I saw two decades ago, football, where you know you were trying to influence and, and suggest that warmths are a good idea, lifting weights could make you a bit stronger, a bit more resilient. And we're, so we're, we're, we're not as early as that now, but we're definitely on that curve, that kind of life cycle curve of being you know, shunned to now more accepted. And the accepted point is, if I can inform them enough to make them um, confident enough in the decision that we're making there, then then I also recognise that that'll be a very positive carryover to how they feel mentally for their preparation. But we are the ones that generally do that. So we'll have a conversation with the engineers and the team around them and go, what are opportunities to do this? And if there's clashes, then we'll, maybe there's a compromise sometimes, but invariably we're doing some sort of raise, but then we'll call to try and get them on the grid in the car as cool as we can, realizing that, is that is that plunging or is that vest orientated? Yeah, like we're, we're I mean, I I played around initially with just doing peripheral cooling and recognizing that it's not as effective as as, as core uh, as dropping someone's core temperature. So you know things like um, cold sprays to the back of the neck, to the back of the wrists, stuff that I've done in, um, in in rugby, for instance. You see common practice during competition, and and even if it's a placebo, I think people like it. Ice vest as well, which can be a bit trickier when. You know, you're traveling trackside in, in, let's say, you know, difficult scenarios where you don't have a freezer sometimes and you're, you're using other methods. But we've got a portable pool that will, it's inflatable. They transfer with us around the team in their, in their cargo. So we'll, we'll plunge for roughly 10 minutes. Oh, okay. So if we like, it'd be really cool to sort of work backwards if you, if you, if you were able to share roughly, how, mm. how does it operate? You know, T minus two hours. Yeah. One is, doing you know visual acuity work or vestibular work or neck isometric work and yeah, that sure, leads sure, into sure. x y and z that would be really cool to hear yeah nice and, and look what what wraps around that is 
again, having a conversation with the driver and the team to say, just so you're all aware, this is the kind of stretch that we're going to run with. So everyone, it, then it should look efficient and it should just run rather than people say, where are you? Where's this? Where do we need to be? So I, the guy that I work with in particular, he likes a structure. So I, in the morning, I'll send him a little WhatsApp to go an hour and a half prior to start. We're starting our prep work. We're starting our so that he knows he gets his other meetings out of the way because they arrive at the track and they've got a timetable to, and that's just printed out and put on the wall and it, it changes, but it gives them the structure to, to chill out and relax that they can just walk through this checklist. So an hour and a half prior to, generally speaking, for a race day on a Sunday, we'll start our 10 minute prep work. And we don't just call it prep work or, or you could call it a one, but doesn't matter. I don't really get hung up on the, the statements of it really, but. It will do, we'll do the movement, we'll do the activation with the stability stuff, and then we'll do some kind of reactive component and then we'll drop his call temperature after erasing it. Then we'll get straight into a, into a call plunge for about 10 minutes. Um, so we're not talking ice bath levels of, you know, three to five degrees as such. We're talking more like 18 to 20 degrees and we'll, and we'll cool there for 10 minutes in that window as well. It presents an opportunity for him to kind of be away from everyone else, avoid this kind of unsolicited approaches that go, good luck today. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? How are you going to approach? And just people wanting to get access to them, be that fans as well that can get access to the paddock, at least in Formula 2, and be sort of milling around and getting in their space. So it means that we can, especially if it's sunny, umbrella goes on and it's his little space. He puts his earpods in and it's either music or there's some self-led meditation in there as well that he likes to do. And then combine that with some breath work. Um, after that, it's then getting changed. Quick trip to the toilet. And the last little bit of carbs will go in. Caffeine, they'll have taken about an hour beforehand as well. He prefers just a simple espresso. We played around with different strengths and shots, but it's just a simple espresso in this instance. But it's cooled espresso as well, rather than another heat thing coming in. Um, and then as soon as he's changed, exactly, as soon as he's changed and done that, then we'll get the vest on. And really hot places will sometimes have a neck wrap on there as well to cool the back. The fat so you'll the cool invest then as well after just to keep it down. Literally. So it's, right. it's almost like he jumps out of the, of the, of the pool and he, and he feels chilled out he feels relaxed and he feels much cooler but then you're stepping back into an ambient of 30 plus so to avoid that inevitable rise or at least stave off the incremental growth of that we'll get him changed towel off ice um uh, vest right on and then when he's having these conversations and toilet he's he's still trying to preserve a level of that cooling um and then you know the mechanics are firing up the car at this point whilst he's having his caffeine or he's having his gel and we're having our last little right Let's define what are the key things that are super important to us here. How are you going to show at the start? Mm. What are the key? Is that, is that with you? Or is that with another individual? Like, is he? Are you taking on that coaching responsibility yeah. as well? Yeah, and, and and it's been a process that I've learned. I've learned through really. I mean, think uh, traditionally as an SNC coach, you and I'll admit to feeling a little bit uncomfortable doing so. A little bit of jurisdiction to do that. A little bit of skill and knowledge about how to do these sorts of things, but. Again, I think through the journey of working with more individuals, I've gone out and sought some um, skill development and some knowledge in that area to have the skill set. Not to say I'm, I'm a yeah. psychologist, but I'm an individual that's having meaningful performance-driven conversations that enable somebody to get into their sweet spot to deliver good outcomes. And again, much of that work and the development of that work for them mentally, behaviorally, is done away from the track. So we're yeah. doing the lesser heavy loading, if you like, in that respect when we yeah. are trackside. It's just touching on main points. It's just reminders, just reinforcements and or dealing with things that may pop up from certain conversations of the individuals or other practice and qualifying sessions that maybe have been a little bit tricky or inflammatory for any reason. We're just trying to bring them back to where they need to be. Just the final yeah. reminders. And it's literally a two minute conversation for that. Yeah. And then it's helmet on into the car, a reconnaissance lap to the grid. 
and then a formation lap and then lights out and start. Yeah. So usually any, any impact of your role from that point on, or is it, are you, do you step back at that point until race is over? Yeah. So in essentially the last, the last touch point with me is, well, there's, there's, there's drinks given on the grid essentially, but there's no mm. conversations. I don't have a line to the, to the driver, nor do I need one. Yeah. And it's the engineer then going through the last minute, you know, reinforcement procedures, uh, and or timings for the pit lane goes live and you can leave the pit lane to get onto the grid to last conversations about, right, what strategy are we running with? Do we change our strategy, tire strategy based on others in front of you or behind you? Are you going to go for a, a change in compound, like a softer or harder tire? Or and or from the practice start that they will do from the formation lap, mm. they've already tried, had an opportunity to pre-test the quality of the mapping that they have with, this is a clutch that we're going to use to start with. Mm. But they don't really know if that's going to change at all based on the introduction of the tire to the tarmac, to the ambient, and to the ground temperature. So that those things can change last minute. And that's where, again, the conversations is back and forth from the engineer. But I'm just listening to those things. I was going to say, you, it, I wondered if you were invested in those conversations. Yeah. Uh, and I, but, and I think, but not necessarily contributing to them. You're just observing and listening for relatable conversations. 100%. And, and, and part of those for me really is to go, you know, it's understanding the driver essentially will, will, will drive where they want to be mentally. I feel mm. my, at my best when I am here. And then it's, we would unpick that and talk about, okay, if that's, if that's success to you, how do we do that consistently? And when you mm. haven't done that as effectively, what does an unsuccessful start or session or race look like for you? And how did that demonstrate behaviorally, verbally? What were mm. you doing mentally? And so we're just kind of having those prompts and reminders that pull them back across to the successful objectives yeah. and processes that enable them to stay there. And so I'm interested in how he models that with just the general conversations, procedural questions or answers that are thrown his way. After the start, when maybe we've gained our lost positions, how does that change? And then mm -hmm. the moments when they're either attacking or defending or they've gone off, how are they showing up in those moments as well? Are they demonstrating yeah. resilience that doesn't necessarily, or, you know, things that basically afford, um, avoid them getting back on track with stay yeah. procedural, stay process, stay focused Amazing. and execution. So. Yeah. It's very much about the execution. But I'm just making notes about the session. I'm keeping an eye on lap times. We're talking about um, moments in the session that were effective or ineffective. And then we can, I can draw some of that back in because they've got so much to remember. So many processes on the wheel or sticking to a strategy that they said, yeah. pit stops and other things, that some of that richness can get lost. But then after a conversation away from the track, we can pull it out again and say, Hey, remember in this moment, what was going on there? Just give me a bit more context to that. Mm. Why did you do that? Why was that decision made? If we're thinking that was yeah. a right or wrong decision, just to either reinforce and or challenge so we can do it better the next time. So you're essentially always qualifying, yes, the decisions that are made against yeah. what you defined as success is. Just kind of coming back to that point, really. Yeah. So what, what I'm hearing there as we sort of come to a conclusion here is that not only are you preparing an individual for performance, at the moment that they're performing, you're taking a really vested interest as a performance coach on decisions that are happening in the moment, behaviors from the athlete, the driver themselves. And you're essentially, what you've just described there to everyone is reflective practice, is the ability to capture insights, that richness that you talk about, reflect on it and learn from that situation. And I guess anchor and see if there's an opportunity within performance to impact that. So if it's a at this moment, I, my head just wasn't focused because I'd been overtaken. Maybe there's a, a mental model approach to that. Or if it's mm -hmm. uh, really struggling in the last 20% of the race consistently, 
how do we try and overcome that either now or, or, or further down the line, which is really, really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, just as we, we come to a conclusion here, then, you know, I'd love to ask you, for, for those that are listening, and I get a lot of practitioners asking me about working in motorsport now, which is fascinating. That shows mm-hmm. the growth of the sport and also the interest in practitioners to try and be in that space. It's clear that you have to have a, a wide role, like become a general specialist, I imagine. Yeah. But what, what are two or three key principles that you would encourage younger practitioners who are looking to jump into the space and maybe do get the opportunity to jump into the space? What are two or three principles that they must sort of adhere to to get the best out of that practice? Fundamentally, you have got to have a skill set and a breadth of competencies that that individuals in that space want. And, and generally speaking, you are developing a relationship with a driver and a manager and the kind of primary stakeholders around them. So you may get an introduction via a team, but more often than not, it's via a manager. Rarely is it certainly at the top level via the driver. So network is absolutely key in this space. You have got to be known, liked, and either trusted to have a conversation for a door to be open for you then to come to the table and then start talking about your competencies and your solutions that you might offer to certain problems that they are not facing and or a level of development that they're seeking that maybe you can bring to the table. So if your competencies and ability to demonstrate your worth is super important for you to do the job as either a strength conditioning coach or physiotherapist, because they are the primary two routes that you tend to see, you know, performance coaches come through and then they develop a breadth like I did of other qualities on the back of it. But if that, if that is your only starting point and you fail to communicate your value or through conversation and, and clever questions, gather information that's key for you to demonstrate your worth, your eligibility to deal with, deal with the things that they want and or offer solutions to problems that they've got. You have to develop the communication abilities to be able to do that. And that's, you know, developing a relationship with coaches who are there right now who enable you to maybe understand a deeper context to what that was like because not a lot of individuals unless you're there on the track side boots on the ground have a knowledge about what's going on and that context is incredibly rich so gather the context by building your relationships and your understanding about the contextual challenges in that sport what tends to play out as the biggest factor there is really the person is having the emotional intelligence is having the social intelligence and it's having the capability to provide this holistic level of support now there's i've got another colleague who talks about being an au pair at times it's you are there not only to do these nice performance strategies that we're talking about but all the other bits around it be the soft skills sometimes as a friend or as a a conduit between them and the garage and the people in the garage and help them understand those relationships better as well so that they can form a deeper level of work with their with their counterparts there's a host of things there but to so go off tangent too much to whittle it down. It's, we're talking about the network and the, in your sociable, your personable skills in that space. And then of course, having at the core of it enough skill and experience to deliver, you know, the skills tracks up. Yeah. I mean, the other, other thing I'd add to this is that you're, you're thinking if you're in that role at that point, one of the key principles is to really hone into the range of opportunities to create impact. And, and the story I like is that intuitively, sorry, well, Traditionally, we think warm-up is preparation, raise, activate, and get everybody primed and ready. But that is counterproductive mm-hmm. because we know the association to high core temperatures and mm-hmm. decision-making. It's the same in rugby sevens, actually. We would minimize our volume of warm-up, and, and then we spend a lot of time cooling between games for that exact reason. Right. So, look, I really, really appreciate your time. 
today, John, on this segment. I know we're going to skip to the next bit now for people to listen to in the next episode. But from me, on behalf of everyone listening, really, really appreciate your insights today. And um, thanks for sharing. No, great. Loved it. Thanks for having me on. So there we have it. Another great episode. Thanks to John for sharing his insights into race day prep for, for motorsport. There's so much we could have dug into there. And so I really appreciate that he shared the finer details on race day preparation. Tune in next week to John's part two, where he digs into the stumbles and the mistakes he's had as a practitioner and the lessons learned. I promise it'll be another really, really good episode. So look forward to sharing that with you next week.